Well, please have a seat. Good morning. Really glad you guys are here. My name is Brian Davis. I'm one of the elders here at Fellowship. My, if we haven't met, if you all are newer, some of you are newer, my family and I have been here since the fall of 2000. So we came in the fall of 2000 to Fellowship shortly after Grant and Karina and their family came to Fellowship. We have raised three kids here in this church. Two of them are launched and are at Baylor, and we still have one, a, a rising sophomore that's here. And this church has meant really so much, virtually everything in our development life. We have had people pour into us, disciple us. We have poured into others and discipled others. Uh, we've had ministries you know, work in our lives, speak to us. We have poured into other ministries. This church has been vital in our development. This congregation has been wonderful. And again, I've been an elder for about 10 years here. My day job is I'm a certified financial planner, so I'm a financial advisor. And it truly is an honor just to be able to open God's Word and go through it with you this morning. We're in a series called Life Lessons from the Gospel of Luke. And so far in this series, we have seen Jesus fulfill the prophecy that proclaimed his deity. He fulfilled that. We have seen him call disciples to follow him. And we've seen him call us to love our neighbor. And he used the the story about the Good Samaritan. And then last week, we studied how he interacted with Mary and Martha. And George really hammered home those points that we learned the importance of sitting at the Savior's feet and prioritizing time in his word. And that same theme of just sitting at the Savior's feet and letting that impact us and using his word, that theme really can continue to our story today. Today we're going to be in Luke 12. And we're going to talk about focus, the focus of our lives, and specifically what we focus our time, talent, treasure, and tribe on. And so as I was studying these verses and really thinking about focus, I was reminded of a recent time of intense focus for me. I was in Big Bend National Park about three months ago with a couple of guys here from Fellowship, actually, and we were doing the legitimate backpacking camping thing. We weren't glamping. We weren't, you know, car camping. We were out in the vast wilderness of Big Bend. And here's a picture. If, if you haven't been to Big Bend and you didn't know Texas has mountains, we do. The highest point in Big Bend is 7,825 feet. And this picture was just on the south rim. So the peak was nearby. I have climbed the peak multiple times, but this was on the south rim looking out. But you can kind of tell there's a lot of elevation there. That's a good-sized canyon back behind me. And we were camping. We had three nights where we had to filter our water, cook our food, do the real backpacking thing. And then we were hiking out Sunday morning back to the beginning of the trail, the trailhead where our car was to come home. And for reasons um, it would take too long to explain here, I told the other two guys to go ahead. Let me finish packing up. I'm slow. I will catch you by the time you get back to the trailhead at the car. It's Sunday morning again, so they've gone. I finish getting packed up. I think, hey, I'll listen to some worship music while I hike. So I put in my headphones, and I, I probably make it 60 seconds down the trail, and then I see this waiting for me. In the distance, this next picture will show there, is a, there are a couple of bears that are right on the hill up in front of me. And just like you, my first thought was, ah, there's bears. And I've seen bears in Big Bend. I know, I think they're supposed to be 12 or 13 or so in that region. I've seen them there before. I hadn't seen them on that trip. And so I thought, pretty cool. Thank you, Lord, for showing me bears on the way out. 
And then the next problem was, the next picture will show what the bears did. They didn't just stay up there on the hill. They came right down to these rocks that the trail is about 10 feet from them on that bottom left-hand side of the picture there. That is where the trail went. And the trail went there for a reason because that was really the only good way to get out of there. Um, and so I went from, oh, that's so cool to, oh, no. And so after after the, the awe part wore off, I started getting nervous. I started thinking, okay, well, bears are, black bears are supposed to be scared, right? I'm scared. Maybe they don't know that. So I started saying like, okay, bears, yeah, let's go. Like, how do you yell at bears? But I'm trying to make noise. I have hiking poles. I'm banging my hiking poles together. I even get some rocks and kind of throw it in their direction. They were not impressed. The cub, the baby actually did start up the hill for a minute. And I thought, oh, good. The mom did not budge, and then the baby comes right back down and sits right there. And I mean, they did not move. And so I think, oh no, okay, so I don't have cell, I have a phone, but no cell service. Let's see, I'm by myself, good move. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Because that really is the only good way past it. There was a spring right there, there was a dry creek and ravines all around, and the trail was fine, but if you go off trail, you're immediately in cactus and sagebrush and thorn and thistle, and I'm thinking... Okay, well, here we go. And so I, I, I had downloaded the map ahead of time on my phone so I could at least know where I was supposed to, how I would might get back to the trail. And I'm taking three steps looking back at the bears. Yeah, they're still there. Three steps looking back at the bears. Yeah, they're still there. But I'm quickly down elevation. I can't see them anymore. So now I'm taking rapid steps just like, are they coming? You know, and I'm going down this ravine and I end up in this dry creek. And in the dry creek, I find immediately lots of bear evidence. Let's just call it that. There's bare evidence everywhere. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm like going straight into a den. Like what's happening? Um, clearly I didn't get mauled. I made it through the den and what well, I thought was a den, but I made it through there and I was watching my phone. I was looking for the trail. I finally do find my way back to the trail. And I'll tell you what, that was a time of hyper focus. I was focused on the bears and constantly looking back, like, are they coming anywhere else around? I'm constantly looking at my phone for the trail and to make sure I'm heading the right direction. And then I think all of a sudden, I'm so focused on that, I forgot to worry about rattlesnakes, you know, because there's snakes everywhere out there. And so now I'm kind of doing this and looking down, I look at my phone, looking everywhere. And then I'm thinking, I'm going to probably twist my ankle and do something to my knee. This is, this is going to end badly. And then the blessing comes to mind. I'm suddenly like singing out loud, Lord, be with me and protect me, going before me and behind me and around me and everywhere, please. You know, I was, uh, and I was trying to make noise because you're supposed to be noisy for bears, you know. Oh, that was that was a time, so I'm sweating just thinking about it. But I tell you that just to illustrate this idea of focus, because that's our topic for today. And we're supposed to have focus not just for just a period or when we're at fear or when there's something right in front of us, but really focus for all of life. And so we show our true focus through our time, our talent, our treasure, and our tribe in all of our lives. So if you would read with me in Luke 12 verses 16 through 21. And this is Jesus talking. He's still talking to a, to a group, to a, a crowd before him. And a few verses before, someone had just asked him, hey, tell, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. So we got somebody who's greedy out there about his inheritance, and Jesus doesn't even bother with that part. He just jumps in right here in verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. 
eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. So right off the bat, life lesson number one, I am not the focus. The collective I, we, I, we are not the focus here. So Jesus is continuing his teaching to his disciples and many followers with this parable. And so who did he just describe? A farmer, a highly successful farmer. But what, what did this farmer have to do with his success? Maybe, maybe he was a classic businessman, right, who through hard work and sheer determination, started with nothing and became something and was highly successful. Is that what? Did this guy do it all himself? Well, verse 16, let's see, let's see what it says. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Wow, how do, you say, how do you say more with fewer words? The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. So in that verse, how much did this man have to do with his success? Now, before farmers get mad, yeah, he probably did. He had to know when to plant. He had to know when to harvest. Maybe he had to organize workers. He probably worked the fields himself. He was probably fairly involved, but he is not the focus of the good crops here. The ground produced the good crop. And so there's a life lesson in this very first verse for us. Some of us, we have good soil. And some of us might have a lot of soil. Others, we don't have as much soil, and what we have might not be as good. Psalm 16.5 says, It is the Lord who assigns the portion. It's the Lord who assigns the portion. This guy had good ground, and the ground produced, produced the good crop. So whether you have lots and good, or not as much and not as good, it's not by accident. It is the Lord who assigned it. Verse 17 says, He thought to himself, What shall I do? So where, where is God in his thinking? If we're talking about focus, where is his focus? He thought to himself, what shall I do? So when does he consult God? Well, 17b, it says, I have no place to store my crops. What would the, the better response be if he's worried about his abundance? See, he has no place to store it. It's so abundant. He could say, Lord, Thank you. You have blessed me abundantly. You have given me all this. In fact, you've been so um, profuse in your blessings that can you help me figure out what to do with it? You know, maybe he would have less to worry about storing if he gave some away, (laughs) if he was charitable, if he was benevolent. That would be one option. Verse 18, it's back to the eye. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. All right, there is now zero doubt as to what he's focused on. He is zoomed in nice and clear. There are six references in those verses to I and my. And how many to God did we just read? None. If we go back to verse 17, we actually have nine references so far to self. I, me, my, nine times so far. His focus is pretty laser sharp. It's on him. Well, verse 19 continues the theme. Verse 19 says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things. Three more I and my references. So now we're at 12. 12 times he said, I, me, my, self. And how many gods? We're still at zero on God. 
Well, verse 20, God changes things. Verse 20, God makes an appearance. And since the landowner didn't seek God, God interjected on his own. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So we've had 12 references so far to what he's thinking about himself and none to God. And now we get to hear what God has to say. It's kind of like in Job. We go through about 37 chapters of Job and his friends pontificating and bemoaning. And then God shows up. Well, here we are here. God shows up. If God ever interjects with a but God in your story, if it's like this, probably not so good. But there are lots of good but gods in scripture that I'm thankful for. I think of Genesis 50, where Joseph said, talking to his brothers, he said, what you meant for evil, but God meant for good. In Acts 3, Peter, talking to the Jews, he said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. What about the Romans road? But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a good but God. And lastly, while we're on the farming theme, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Those are lots of good but gods in scripture that are encouraging. Um, This one, not so much. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So did you notice all the yous in that? So God took his very thinking, his very words, and turned it right back around on him. How often do we convict ourselves with our own thoughts and our own language? That's exactly what happened here. So God was involved in this story of blessing through the ground's provision. He assigned the boundary lines. He gave the portion. He gives the increase, like Paul said. But this guy, all the storing and preparing was all done by, by you, by him in his own mind. God was not part of his decision or planning. The ironic result is, as it says here, is someone else will get it. Someone else is actually going to get all that he's worried about and stored up. It doesn't even go to him. And then verse 21, Jesus broadens the story with this summary statement. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The first thing I noticed there is what it says. It says, this is how it will be with anyone who does this. So that could be you. That could be me. Any of us could fall into this same line of thinking where we're focused on ourselves, our wants, our desires, the things that we think that we did on our own. It becomes all about us. That could happen to any of us. And what, what does it mean to be rich toward God? That's the phrase that's used, rich toward God. In this context, we don't know if this guy had ever given in the past. Did he even know God? Did he have a relationship with God? Did he ever pray with God? Had he just gone down the wrong path and he had kind of forsaken and he was in this period of wandering? We don't know. But we know that right now he was thinking a whole lot more about his barn plans and his construction project than he was about what God might happen to do with his abundance. And please note also what Jesus says. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The storing up is not wrong in this case, because that's not what it says. It says this, will be how, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Virtually all of us here have stored up something. We have 
a car in the parking lot with value to it. We have a house that we have value in the house. We have a checking account, 401k, investment portfolio, a piggy bank. We've got something where we have stored up. We have some kind of things that we have saved and set aside. And this doesn't say that is wrong. The storing up is not wrong. The not being rich, not being mindful towards God is what is wrong. That's where the problem is. This is God's treasure. It's not yours. It's not ours. We're stewards, meaning we don't actually own it. We manage it, but we don't own it. It's God's. So the problem comes when your focus is on the the horizontal and not the vertical. That's where he gets into trouble. So there's three responses to this parable that I thought of. First, you could say, I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me. (laughs) Good. It might be my neighbor's problem, not mine. Well, here's some other examples I thought of. What about when it comes to quantity? What about the widow's mite, where she gave two small coins to the temple treasury? And what does the text say? It says that it was more than all the others had given, her two small coins. What about the parable of the talents, where one guy is given five talents, one's given two, one's given one. So they're all given different amounts, but we're held responsible for what we do with what we're given. Even if somebody else is given five times what we're given. What about the parable of the workers in the vineyard? There, all the workers are given the same amount. They all get paid the same amount, but they go to work at different times of the day. They work a different number of hours, but they have the same amount of money at the end of it. The quantity comes and goes. That's not really the issue. You are responsible for the quality of your heart and the quality of your stewardship not the quantity of what you're given. You control what you control. You focus on what you control. You could say, well, I want to save a surplus because I want to pass it on to my family. I want to be generous with my family. This teaching doesn't say that you can't prayerfully give to your family. It just says that you should prayerfully give to your family. You could also say, Well, I I save and have a surplus in order to take care of myself so my kids or somebody else won't have to. I would say that being responsible is not discouraged here. Being oblivious to God is discouraged. That's where the problem comes. So there's three conclusions that I thought about as well about what does it mean to be rich toward God. Well, one solution here, one conclusion that you could draw is that you could compare how rich am I towards God compared to how rich I am towards my other interests, my hobbies, things that I spend my time, talent, and treasure on. And when it comes to being rich towards God with finances, if you think that just running a quick 10% calculation of your pay and doing a 10% tithe to God is being rich toward God, I would say you're probably missing the point of this teaching. If you're wondering Okay, well, should I give off my gross before tax or my net after tax, all these deductions? I would again say you probably missed the point of this parable. When it comes to being rich toward God and what does giving look like, Paul gives us pretty clear um, description in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says that we are to give proportionally, sacrificially, regularly, off the top. That's what it looks like to be rich toward God. And giving richly, I would say, even applies in retirement. Sometimes people ask me, again, because I'm a financial advisor, and so sometimes people will say, well, when I retire, I don't have a paycheck anymore. How do I give? You still have income, Social Security, maybe you have a pension. You're living and traveling and doing things based on maybe withdrawals from your portfolio. You still got an income. Give off of whatever's funding your retirement. I would also say, lastly, that 
giving should never wait to start until you feel like you have a surplus. You can say, well, when I get a surplus, when I got this barn problem, then I'll start giving. No, back to 2 Corinthians 8. We are to give proportionately, regularly, sacrificially, off the top. That's what it looks like to be rich toward God. So if you take this to heart, and then you start thinking, okay, I'm called to do this, this life of generosity, this being rich toward God, that could cause some anxiety because now you see dollars flowing out and we really equate surplus to security. Wrongly, but we do. The more we grow over here, the better we feel about our security. Well, we find our security in our money, unfortunately. And so if you start employing this, that could cause anxiety. These next verses will help us with anxiety, whether it's about finances, whether it's about health, whether it's about family, whether it's about the job situation, whatever our anxiety is, Jesus has these words for us. Life lesson number two, we need to focus on the eternal, not the temporal, as we trust God, renounce anxiety, and steward our time, talent, treasure, and tribe for his purposes. We need to focus on the provider, not the provision. Verse 22, it says, Then, so right after he he finished telling us to be rich toward God, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. (laughs) So basically he says, don't worry about the two most basic necessities of life. Don't worry about food, don't worry about clothes. But he does say that there is more to life than that. And so whether it's the story of the widow's might, the parable of the talents, the workers hired at different times but paid the same, money is a necessity. We, money, we function with money. That's what things are built on. But it's a tool. And there are things more important than that tool. But if you're thinking, well, it seems like a pretty important tool to me, I would say let's keep reading. Verse 24 says, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Wow, okay. So Jesus said, don't worry about food and clothing. And he gives an example of the ravens. The ravens do nothing today to prepare for tomorrow, yet God takes care of them. And then we're told that we are much more valuable than those ravens the ones who do nothing today to prepare for tomorrow. And so, so what does he say about worry? Who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? But if you could, what does he call that? He says that would be a very little thing. So you can't do it. You worry about it. Even if you could do it, that's a very little thing. So being kind of a numbers guy, I thought about it and I thought, okay, it's a very little thing. So just an hour. If you live to be 85 years old, how many hours would you have lived in your life? Anybody good at mental math? That's 744,600 hours by age 85. And you can't do anything to make that 744,601 hours. You can't even do that. In that scheme, it does sound, in that sound, it does seem like a very little thing. So if we can't even manufacture just a little bit of extra time to add to our life through our worry then why do we take that inability and that worry and spread it over everything else? (laughs) Like, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to clothe ourselves? And how are we going to provide for ourselves? So if we can't even manufacture that, why do we spread it? The ravens don't store 
and the ravens don't reap. They don't have, what does the text say? They don't have what? They don't have a barn. Who just had a barn? The rich fool just had a barn. And the, so that means the raven doesn't say to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. The raven isn't worried about that. And God takes care of the raven. The unmistakable implication here is that the God takes care of the raven who doesn't do anything for tomorrow. He will take care of us because we are much more valuable than the ravens. That's what it says. So then Jesus asked the rhetorical question. So why do you worry? I just showed you how pointless it is. Why do you worry? I think we worry because we actually think we onboard all those responsibilities and we think it is all on us. We have to figure it all out. We have to plan it all. We have to get it all figured out just right to provide for ourselves, provide for our family, do these things we feel called to do and the responsibilities that God has put on us, but we think it's all on us. And if we don't do it just right, it's going to fall apart. So we worry. We focus on ourselves and our own production rather than God and his provision. I say this is a powerful lesson. And I think Jesus wants us to get this lesson because he gives us another example right afterwards. As soon as he finishes with the raven, verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So first we examine the birds and how God provides for them. And so now we we are going to focus and look at the clothing aspect of the don't worry command. The ravens don't produce, harvest, or store, and God takes care of them. So here we're told that the lilies don't labor or spin. They don't do anything to produce their clothes, yet Solomon, richest, grandest person that any of them had read about or heard about or could think about, that's Solomon, the one that other kings and queens from miles and miles around would come in to see and be in his presence. He can't even compare it to the lilies that don't labor or spin to dress themselves. The rich fool was concerned about his abundance, and he asked himself, what shall I do? And he answered himself, this is what I'll do. Again, the ravens don't do anything. They don't sow or reap. The lilies don't do this or that. They don't labor or spin. Yet God clothes the grass of the field in a way that not even Solomon can compare. And again, we are infinitely more valuable than ravens and lilies. So deductive reasoning, there is no other way around the fact that Jesus is telling them this so they can look at this and see, I am way more valuable than this. God takes care of these. Will he not take care of me as well? In fact, the text says he would do even more than that. Verse 28b, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. These verses don't say that God will help us clothe ourselves. What does it say? It says, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. He does the clothing And this is where we should be saying, if we truly understood this, where we would be saying, oh, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, you have little faith. I believe this, but I don't believe it. I need to believe it. Your text says it. I can't get around it. Oh, we should believe. So why are these verses that we have read today linked together? What what are the common denominators so far from the rich man all the way through the 
ravens and the lilies. One, maybe we aren't rich toward God because we're worried about providing food and clothing and shelter for ourselves and our families. We worry about that. Second, maybe like the rich fool, we are very concerned with self. We're laser focused. We're on the I, me, my. But this is saying God will take care of you. You don't have to be focused on self. He's got you. Number three, maybe we just don't trust God. or Maybe he doesn't even enter into the equation. You know, maybe we're not even focused on him at all. Maybe number four is that we're not focused on him and we're just swimming along with the current. We're just going along with the, with the tide and going where everything else, where the culture takes us, where all those around us go. Well, that is a sure way to not have God's perspective and to be focused on self and materialism. So here's what Jesus wants us to focus on as a result of this teaching. Last lesson number three is focus on the kingdom, not the temporal. Focus on the kingdom. Verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. So again, do not set your heart on these things. Do not worry about temporal things. That is what the world does. You, if, you don't, if that doesn't immediately come to mind, just think about a lot of the slogans that we see and hear in advertising tells us on a daily basis. Carpe diem. You've got one life to live. Live your best life now. You do you. You deserve it. Everything around us is focused on self. But your father knows that you need these things. So we're not saying that, those, that a lot of these things that we need aren't... aren't um, important and aren't needed. What if he actually said, you don't need that stuff, clothes, food, you don't need that. We wouldn't even be able to comprehend that. That's not what he says. That'd be a hard teaching to accept. Just like the ravens and the lilies need food and clothing, so do we. And our father knows that. Does the text give us an out to say, okay, he knows that, but he won't provide it. No, Jesus goes to great lengths here to show us that God will provide So verse 31 then, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. So finally, we're told, what do we do? What can we do? We know that that we don't just sit back, let go and let God. He's going to take care of us. We don't do anything. No, he's given us initiative, energy, will, minds, bodies to do things. But this is just like what parents do with kids. You see your kid going this way, that's the wrong direction. You pick them up, you reorient them towards the right way, and you try to redirect them to positive things, things that are good and noble and right. And that is what we're told to do here. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Remember how the rich fool had a but God in his story? And it really wasn't a good but God in his case? Well, we have one right here as well. Ours is of the good but God variety. But seek his kingdom, God's kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So God doesn't discount our need for food, for clothing, for shelter, for covering. Verse 30 says, your father knows that you need them. Ah, he is a good, good father. He knows that we need them and he wants to provide what we need, but he wants our hearts to be right first. He doesn't, it's not good for us if we have this abundance and like the rich fool, we're wrongly oriented on ourself. I, me, my, and then who gets it at the end? Not even you, not even any of your family potentially. 
No, he is a good father. He wants our hearts in the right place first. And he tells us what that looks like. In verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Our, our father is pleased to give us the very thing he tells us to seek. He says to seek the kingdom and he's pleased to give it to us. Matthew actually says uh, that the kingdom was prepared for us since before the creation of the world. So he says seek it and he actually gives it to us. And listen to the tenderness that it says. It says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father is pleased to give it to you. He doesn't say in this mad, angry voice, come on, get it together. How many times have I had to tell you? It's not that. You don't, you don't hear any of that in these verses. That's not, that's not the heart that he comes with. And I notice this truth in Scripture often, that we're just told to seek. We're told to walk by faith. We're told to trust. And he does all the hard work around us, just like here. He does the work. We turn towards him, and he gives us what he knows that we need. And by the way, this is the fifth prompting in these verses not to worry. Five don't worries. We are meant to get that. We are meant to, to take that in and let it impact our heart. So don't, how do we do that? Don't focus again on the horizontal. Focus on the vertical. That will help us to stop worrying. Verse 33, if we fully start to understand that on what God has done with us and for us and what he's pleased to do in our lives, verse 33 is to be our response to this blessing. It's our expression of seeking his kingdom That's the proof that our hearts are focused on him. It says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So rather than hoarding all of our assets and trying to build these temporal barns, as we seek his kingdom, we will be generous towards Christ and towards others. We don't store up possessions, we sell them. We are called to make the great exchange. We are to take the rusty, easily stolen, deteriorating moth food and exchange it for treasure in heaven that will never perish, spoil, fade, can't be taken away. That is the great exchange. We're worried about security and what we try to hoard to give us security doesn't do any of that. It again, it can be stolen, it deteriorates, it's gone. It doesn't actually go with us. We are to exchange that for heavenly treasure. Make the great exchange. As a financial advisor, when I meet with clients, a lot of times we do these long-term financial planning projections. We take their current situation into account, all the correct assumptions, and we plan out what does the rest of your life financial planning-wise look like. And if they're living in such a way and they're planning in such a way that by the time they get into, say, 80s and 90s, if their assets are still doing this, still projected to be growing up, or even let this, where they're just projected to kind of hold their own to be horizontal, I will say a lot of times, you know, you might not be doing what God has called you to do with stewardship. You know the saying, it's not true that he who dies with the most wins. You don't. You also know the saying that there's no U-Hauls in heaven, Right. You know what else is not in heaven? There's no barns in heaven. So why sometimes do we, are we tempted to hoard, 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 say, say, say for this future date when it doesn't even do us any good? Exchange moth food for eternal blessings. And as the rich fool found out, who will get what you prepared for yourself anyway? 
And so this text also is meant, it's not just about financial generosity. There is generosity with your time, with your talent. Yes, with your treasure, and also with your tribe, your family. Who are those that you're impacting? Generosity is something that is really worth studying. And if you've never spent much time there, again, not just financial, but with your time, talent, treasure, and tribe, there's a great website called generousgiving.org. It's a, it's a fully funded ministry. They're not going to ask you for money, but there's stories on there. There's videos. There's real people who have given their lives towards what does it look like as an individual? What does it look like as a family to promote generous living? Not just giving, living with all of life. So verse 34 is a summation. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is an easy way to examine your true focus. You don't have to get to the end of life and then say, well, how did I do? Did I do it good? Where was my, was my focus right? God knows your heart. Do you want to know what your focus is? You've actually left a trail of what your focus is. When it comes to your time, you just have to look back at your calendar. What you're emphasizing with your time shows where your treasure and your focus is on your time. What about your talent? What have you poured yourself into? What skills have you learned to develop? What are they for? What are you trying to apply yourself to? Where are your passions? That tells you what your focus is on your talent. Your treasure? We talked about that. You've got a ledger. You've got a giving statement. You've got a checkbook register. You've got a credit card statements. Pretty easy to see what we value with our treasure, with our finances. And then our tribe. We have people around us. We have a family. We have coworkers. We have neighbors, friends, people in our sphere of influence or just circle of life that, that we are actually giving very good cues on what, what we focus on with our, with our lives, with our tribe. Because we're, again, we are stewards, not just of money. We're stewards of our time, our talent, our treasure, and our tribe. So you're storing up something with it. Is it something that'll be a part of God's kingdom? Or is it something that will just fade away? Well, this verse says you don't have to wait to find out because where your treasure is, what you're doing right now, that's where you're going to find your heart. That's where you're going to find what your focus is. So Jesus told us that there are no barns needed in heaven because you can't take it with you and only a fool would try. These verses have so impacted me that over the past month or so, I've kind of tweaked and rewritten my life mission statement um, that takes these verses into account. And so I will give it to you now. And if you ever see me doing a counter to this, call me out on it. So my life mission, my mission is to steward the time, talent, treasure, and tribe entrusted to me by Jesus Christ for his glory one day at a time. That's what I feel like God's called me to do. And I got a chance to apply that just a couple days ago. Um, Thursday and Friday, my family, Aaron, and then our, our sophomore, we went down to San Antonio. I had a part business, part pleasure trip. And on the way back, Friday coming back up, we stopped in Green, just north of San Antonio, and decided to have lunch at the Grist Mill. So some of you might see that. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been there. Uh, the Grist Mill, it's a great restaurant, open air. So at one o'clock on Friday, it was kind of hot. But we were there, and uh, we had a waiter who took very good care of us, very efficient. He stopped by, explained the menu, told us the specials, answered any question, kept water and tea refilled, brought us our food. In fact, he was so efficient, I really couldn't have much of a conversation with him. I kept wanting to ask him some questions. So finally, at the end, he brings us our ticket, you know, drops it down, and he's about to go. And I say, hey, how long have you worked here? 
And he goes, I've worked here about 10 years. Normally I'm over attending bar, but my wife and I just had a baby Monday night and she was actually in labor for three nights. And our baby is still in the hospital because it was such a traumatic um, labor process that there's been neurological damage and the doctor is still trying to figure out exactly you know, what issues that our, our baby is going to have. And he said, we've actually been told that it could be, the, da- the daughter is a girl, that she could be up to a year old before we find out just what all the ramifications of this are. And he said, so I'm actually not working at the bar. I'm working here serving food so I can go to the hospital whenever I'm called to. He says all that, and I'm thinking, wow, time, talent, treasure, and tribe. So there's three of us. I wish I could say there was a fourth chair. I said, hey, pull up this chair. Let's pray for you right now. I was thinking about it as he was telling us about where he is and his ordeal. I was thinking, boy, I'd love to just pray with him right now. But we were at the end of this row. It was really busy. People were coming back and forth and bumping by and squeezing past him. And I thought, just it seemed like a weird time to try to say, hey, can we pray for you? So I just said, as, as he was leaving, I just said, my family and I, we will be praying for you. And he said, thank you. And he left. So then, again, we sit there at the table. We were thinking, time, talent, treasure, tribe. And so we talked about it for a minute. We proceeded to, to leave a, the biggest tip we've ever left anybody anywhere. We left a very nice tip. And at the top of the receipt, trying to make sure you saw it, I wrote, the Davis family will be praying for you and your daughter's health. And we've done that. We have done that. We continue to lift them up. And so we're just trying. Do we always see opportunities? No. Could we have done more in that opportunity? Maybe we could have, but... We just try to take advantage of whatever we see in God opening doors for time. We, we took the time to have the conversation. We invested just talent and our skills in trying to have that conversation with them. Yeah, treasure, we gave hopefully what he thinks is a very nice and a surprisingly good tip. And then as a tribe, we're praying and we're continuing to bring them before the Father. And so now you have this material in front of you. Page three in the bulletin gives all just a bunch of notes for exactly what Jesus is communicating in these passages. So you have this information. What are you going to do with your time, talent, treasure, and your tribe? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a good, good father. You don't just come and, and put a bunch of demands in front of us and demands that we can't meet but you love us, you provide for us, you give us the ability and oftentimes even the desire to try to follow you, to seek you. And Lord, you're going to give each of us opportunities in the coming days, weeks, maybe in the coming hours to see what are we going to do with this truth. May we have faith, may you keep anxiety at bay as we just seek to be obedient, as we seek to honor you through our time, through our talents through our treasure, through our tribe. You are good to us. You have blessed us. And we want to bless you and honor you as well. If there's anybody here today, anybody is hearing this that has not said, I know that good, good father. I have a relationship with him. If you don't, he's calling you right now. He is a good, good father. He wants to invite you into the kingdom that he has prepared for you. Would you do that today? Your life will never be the same. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.